0: I'm going to read the Bible for us now. Um, The reading today is from Matthew 5. It's verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good,
1: Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us this morning, and especially if it's your first time in a church gathering at all. Um, But also if it's just your first time with us, it's so good to have you here as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. Our kids were really looking forward to this week, and I asked them yesterday what they're looking forward to the most, and they said, burgers. Burgers. And I, and I said, but, and also Jesus, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great too. Yeah, we really want to learn about Jesus, but also just lunch. They're just, you know, they're kids. They're fixated on that sort of thing. But also, if you are, if this is your first week, don't feel shy about sticking around and enjoying lunch with us. We wanted to celebrate together for our first week, so we'd actually love to have you with us to do that. And it's going to be, hopefully, a really great day uh, to enjoy this new venue, to be a church community. Uh, but we are looking at, our, at as, as Jacob said, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, and if you've ever used phrases like "eye for an eye," "turn the other cheek," or "go the extra mile," inadvertently you've been quoting this particular passage. And what we're going to dive into is what Jesus was actually saying about it. Because while his his terms and his phrases have made it into our common language, often his meaning hasn't. And here he's going to be telling us pretty, something pretty radical about retaliation. I remember when I was in high school; I was probably about seventeen. And I was at home on a reasonably uneventful day, and there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door to see probably the biggest man I've ever seen. And he was just covered in tats, he had a ponytail, he had weightlifting pants, and my first thought was, what have I done? Who, who is it that I've offended? Is there someone i ripped off? What has actually happened here? And then he said, Jeremy... And it was in a tone, though, that was kind of familiar and friendly. And so I realized at that point that I probably wasn't about to be, like, shook down or something like that, but I also couldn't quite work out what was going on. And then as I looked at his face, it was like the facial recognition technology was sort of calculating the algorithms, and I realized this was my friend who I hadn't seen for a few years. And the reason I didn't recognize him was the last time I saw him, he was pretty much my build. He was a pretty lean teenager. And he'd gone away for a few years and come back absolutely huge. And so I said to him, I was like, man, you got huge. Have you been juicing? He's like, no, I haven't. I was like, no, you haven't. You clearly haven't. Whatever you say is completely the truth. That's fine. This looks very natural to me. I could be that big if I wanted to. Anyway, as we got to talking about why it was that he was back in town, it was an interesting reason to have made his way back to Sydney. So in high school, he was, actually, he was a top dog. He was a, reasonably, he was a pretty popular kid and all this sort of thing. So he wasn't a, like a, it wasn't the story of like a loser kid come back to avenge his debts. But there were certain moments that obviously for him had stood out as a matter of humiliation that needed to be dealt with. And he'd come back and he was telling me there was, a, there was one of his friends who had borrowed 50 bucks, he'd asked for it back and he never gave it back and he came back to ask him for like five times the amount. And he was coming back and doing all of these things, almost like settling accounts. And it was, it was kind of shocking to me because I knew him to be like a pretty tough kid. And he was a kid that I'd kind of looked up to. And he was a popular kid. So it had surprised me that there were these moments that obviously anyone around him hadn't noticed, but he had felt like a deep humiliation that actually needed to be avenged and set right. And it's crazy, isn't it, how much the desire for retaliation can grip us. I mean, most of us can probably relate in some way, can't you? You can think of a time where someone made you feel small, either physically or in a boardroom or at work or in the school context, someone who humiliated you, and you rehearsed in your mind getting your vengeance, either standing them down in front of everyone or actually some kind of violent kind of retribution. Most people, not me, I'm, I'm sure, you know, people here, but I've never thought those kind of things, right? But most of us, we can relate to that feeling when something unjust has happened to us, the sense that there is this outstanding debt that needs to be settled. It needs to be made right. And retaliation intuitively feels like the best way to make things right again, doesn't it? Someone has done me wrong, so I'm going to do something to them, either equal or even worse, and then there's going to be balance restored. But the truth was, even for my friend, even after having come through and settled all of his accounts, he still felt very much not at ease in his soul. And for most of us, if you've actually managed to get your vengeance, that really the satisfaction lasts a moment and then it fades. Because the truth is, while while retaliation feels like the intuitive way to respond to an injustice that's been done to us, somehow it doesn't work. And Jesus here is going to address how it is that retaliation can so easily escalate and why it is that he doesn't work. He's going to say instead that love, not retaliation, is what will bring restoration. That love and not retaliation is what will bring restoration. And this isn't just merely mouth talk from a guy who wasn't willing to take a punch. Jesus stood on his own words. In fact, soldiers in his presence were intimidated by him. And yet, he was willing to take a punch for the good of others. And so as we sit under Jesus' words this morning, may we hear them afresh. If you are here for the first time, that won't be hard to hear them afresh. And so my prayer will be that you understand Jesus' real meaning behind what he says. But if you are here and a follower of Jesus, may this not just be another run-through of a passage that you're familiar with, but may it strike you anew that you might desire to live this out in your own life. I'm going to pray that we behold God in his word this morning. Father, we ask... That we would treat your word, holy scripture, as your very word to us. That we would know that you speak through your word. That you teach us who you are and what it means to live for you. And we know that none of us have the power to live for you on our own. So we just pray that you would strengthen us for this. And Father, may you do this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, Jacob mentioned before that we're in chapter 5. Uh, And Veronica read it out for us before as well. And if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, it's the story of Jesus, everything from his birth right to his death and his resurrection and his very last teachings. And we're in a particularly famous section called the Sermon on the Mount, a section that has made its way into popular culture, phrases that you may be familiar with, even if you had no church background growing up. And this section here, Jesus is moving through a bunch of teachings that are really impacting the people around him. He's often picking up on teachings from the Bible that they had, which we would call now the Old Testament. And he's saying to them things like, you have heard it said, and he'll quote the Old Testament, and then he'll apply it to their life right now. And this is one of those sections. Here in Matthew 5.38, he's going to quote to them something from Scripture, but he's going to explain to them how it is that they are not living out the meaning of God's Word and what it's going to look like to be his followers and to truly live out God's Word. And so look what he says here in Matthew 5:38 to 42. Jesus says, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here Jesus picks up on a phrase from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now the context for this was the command not to murder. And the context for it was that if you had taken someone's property, their goat or some such thing, which I know we, a lot of us can relate to, right? Who hasn't had a goat stolen here? But in Jesus' day, it was a big issue. And in the Old Testament, it was saying, look, if that happens, you can't then pay back double. If someone has taken your goat and they're found to be guilty for having stolen it, then they replace a goat, one for another, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And the spirit of the law was meant to be limiting retribution. So it wasn't a mandate that if someone does something to you, you must repay them. It set an absolute top limit, a cap on what could be done for restoration. And it was meant to be limiting retaliation and limiting violence, because God knows the human heart, and he knows that humiliation leads to retaliation. When we feel humiliated, we get this almost this white-hot adrenaline course through us, and it leads us to want to pay back double or triple. And then, of course, we do something to someone else, and then they pay back double or triple, and the cycle of violence continues. Saladin is famously quoted as saying of, of, the, of the Middle East, his context, that spilt blood never slumbers. That is, that when blood is spilt those feuds can go on for decades or even centuries or even millennia. The cycle of retaliation continues on. God knows that humiliation leads to retaliation. So when he gives his people a law, he sets a cap on what you can do. And it's important that we do this because we know that things can get out of hand so quickly, can't they? Even just to use something a little more lighthearted as a context, years ago when I was leading a youth group, we had a bunch of youth leaders that were engaged in just an ongoing what they called a prank war, and so it kind of kicked off because someone had uh, had had they'd had a bunch of like bread rolls left over from a barbecue that we were doing, and so they used all of those bread rolls to stuff every drawer in one guy's desk completely full of bread rolls, which is like it, it's a that's a funny prank, right? But it led to this ongoing chain of things, and it kind of it got to the point where where one guy put a dead animal in someone else's car in a point where they couldn't get it out. And it actually, it actually ruined the car to the point where it was undrivable and really not even resellable. And at that point, I remember thinking like, this is getting out of hand. And, and the, the thing that was so frustrating about it was they kept saying these were pranks. And I was like, this doesn't feel like a prank. This feels a lot worse. And so I came up with a rule to limit the retaliations. And this is what I think this is a pretty decent rule when it comes to pranks. If it takes you longer to set up the prank than to clean it up, it's a prank. If it takes longer to clean it up than to set it up, it's vandalism, right? That's your definition for you. Spray paint, that's vandalism. Filling someone's office with balloons takes forever. That's clever. That's a prank. And so I had to give this this rule to them to say, if you can't fit the rule, it's not a prank. You're just being a vandal, right? You're just trashing someone else's gear. And it helped to kind of just limit this, like, this, uh, this prank war that was getting out of hand. And here, God, in the same way, gives his people a limit. He says, this is, You are not to be a people marked by constant retaliation. If something has been done wrong, then make restitution and be done with it and move on. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But by the time of Jesus' day, this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was being used in the opposite way. It was saying, if you have suffered the least offence... God commands you to avenge yourself. You must go and get an eye for the eye that you lost. You must go and get a tooth for the tooth that you lost. It was being used to increase retaliation rather than decrease it. And so Jesus wants to address it with them all. And he says to them, you've heard it said this. Let me explain to you what God is teaching his people to be. He is teaching them not to be retaliatory people. And he picks up on three examples. He says, if you're sued for your tunic, give them the cloak as well if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. That's where we get the phrase to go the extra mile. And the context for it was that a Roman soldier, because those were the current occupying force for a Jewish person, if they wanted their gear carried, they could commandeer any citizen and say to them, carry my stuff for up to a mile. And Jesus here is saying, if that happens to you, actually even be willing to go two miles to go the extra mile. Don't just not retaliate, but actually be someone who would go the extra mile. Be generous. Don't refuse one who would borrow from you. But then the questions start to roll through, don't they? And Jesus just has this way of getting under your skin. Because he says these phrases that are so provocative that you can't just leave them alone, can you? And people have wrestled with this passage over a long period of time. Does this mean that Jesus is saying, if someone would do evil to you, that you can't even resist them? Is Jesus saying that actually you couldn't be a police officer, someone who intervenes to prevent further violence? Is that what Jesus is getting at here? And I'm conscious, as we give context to Jesus' words, that I don't want to be guilty of minimizing Jesus' commands because right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, knowing that Jesus is going to say some hard-hitting stuff, he says to the people there, anyone who relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. So he's anticipating already that he's going to teach some radical stuff. Everyone's going to want to water it down, turn it down, qualify it down. And Jesus is saying, you need to let the impact of these things hit you. I'm going to say some hard-hitting stuff. So I want to be careful with that. But we need to start understanding context what Jesus is and isn't talking about. For one, we know from the very Gospel of Matthew that when people are using the temple, the very place that was meant to be the place of meeting with God, they're using it to make profit and to sell religious trinkets. Jesus drives them out, and he drives them out physically. So he's not against using measured force in order to bring about justice. And the context here is that Jesus is talking about retaliation. He's not saying never step in to protect others. He's not saying protect yourself from someone doing further damage. What he is saying is, though, to never retaliate. That if you are struck or someone has done something to you and you have the opportunity to retaliate or to not retaliate, he says, do not retaliate. That is not the thing that will bring restoration. Don't do it. And just think here, he's speaking to a people who are humiliated people and have every motivation to want to retaliate. They used to be the greatest nation in the ancient Near East. And they've been run over by occupying force after occupying force. The Babylonians, then the Persian Empire, then the Greeks, now the Romans are in charge. And everywhere they would have gone would have been a reminder that you are an oppressed people. Every time they saw a Roman soldier or Roman guard, they were aware. Every time they had to pay for things with something that had Caesar's insignia on it, they would have known we are, a, we are a subjugated people. And it would have been humiliating. And so they would have wanted to take any chance to get some kind of vengeance back at these people who pressed them down and had their foot on their neck constantly. And Jesus is saying here to them, don't retaliate. Be even willing to suffer wrong without vengeance. Turn the other cheek. But more than that, he doesn't actually just say, just don't retaliate. He won't have the people that are marked just by what they don't do. But he actually goes further and says, actually, don't just not retaliate. I know that's a lot of negatives. Don't just not retaliate, but actually love your enemies. Look what he says. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. He starts again by saying, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, just to be clear, that's a little little twist that the, the people at the time had put on it. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is not in the Bible. Love your neighbor is... Someone else has tacked on and hate your enemy just for good measure. But he's quoting to them something they're obviously familiar with. This is a phrase that was in circulation at the time. So he says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says not only don't retaliate, but he says actually do good and seek the good of your enemies. And that really includes anyone that you don't get along with. From someone from whom you've actually suffered wrong, Right through is something you just don't like. You just don't vibe with them. Anyone that would, that's in that range of person would classify as an enemy here. And Jesus says, you are to love them and to seek their good. And you're thinking, look, I get that. All right, pray for your enemies. I will. I will. I will pray that God will rain down fire on them and that they will have terrible lives. I will definitely, I will bring the storehouses of heaven upon them for that end. But Jesus is actually saying, and when he says pray for your enemies with love, It is for their good, not that they may be able to continue to do wickedness if that's what's happening, but that they might find repentance, that they might change, that they might be renewed, that God might have mercy on them. And if this sounds like something that's too much, I realize for some of you, you are thinking of something very specific right now, and it is a deep wound. And if you're thinking this is too much, just know that God is not asking us to do something that he is unwilling to do. See, even here, Jesus says, really, God himself does good to his enemies. Whenever he brings sun or rain, that is his kindness to people who stand in enmity against him. Even Hitler got to enjoy a sunset. Even Stalin got to enjoy the fruit of rain that brought harvest. I realize in Sydney, we don't see rain as a blessing. But in an agricultural culture, rain was a blessing. And here, Jesus is saying every time the sun rises or falls, it's a reminder that God does good to even those who are enemies of him. He doesn't just not, Jesus says, don't just not retaliate, but actually seek the good of those who would not return you good in favor. Jesus says, love people, not just those who love you, not just those who are different, but actually people who are seeking your harm. And this is a radical teaching. And your thought and objection may even be at this point, this just sounds naive and weak. This sounds like stuff that maybe in a peaceful context like Sydney you could even get away with. This isn't, this isn't the kind of stuff that's going to fly across the world. But the truth is, Jesus spoke it into a context where the realities of violence and retaliation were everyday realities. So he started it in a context where actually his first followers were oppressed or even killed for following him for the first 300 years of Christianity. So even in that sense, it's not naive or weak. But even in our day, though Jesus' teaching is so counterintuitive, it's real. Let me draw you to the story of Kishaya Thomas. She was a black woman who was attending an anti-racism rally in the mid-90s in Ann Arbor. And they were protesting the presence of the KKK in their city. When someone saw in the crowd, in the protest, that a man was walking across with a Confederate flag and an SS tattoo and people called him out and the crowd charged after him and began to beat him. And Kashia Thomas, just a teenager at the time, threw herself over him to protect him. This is the photo of it and it's pretty striking. A nearby photographer called Mark Brunner captured this image, and you may have seen it before. There are articles that have been done on it since. She's been interviewed on it year after year. But in reflecting on this photo, Mark Brunner was was shocked by what an incredible act of courage it was. And he said this. He said, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. And he says, who does that in this world? And reflecting on it, she was a woman of faith and believed that her faith led her to this conviction. But not only that, she describes that the lasting impact and the legacy of her action on that day was to prevent the cycle of retaliation and violence. She says that a few months later, she was in a coffee shop and a man came up to her and thanked her. And of course, she asked, what for? And he said, that was my dad. And, of course, she knew who he was talking about. And her reflection on this was that she, that action had prevented further violence. She said, for the most part, people who hurt, they come from hurt. And let's say they had killed him or hurt him really bad. How does the son feel? Does he carry on the violence? Her act of self-sacrifice for someone who, in every way, it was fair to regard as her enemy prevented potentially the next generation in his family of doing exactly the same. Jesus' truth, though it's hard-hitting and radical, is right. Retaliation just leads to retaliation, just leads to retaliation. Whether that's in small workplace issues or when it comes to violence or war or tribal warfare, Jesus is right. The only thing that breaks the cycle of retaliation and constant retribution is love. But more than that, Jesus isn't willing to just talk about these things. He's not someone who will just talk the talk but doesn't walk the walk. He's, speaking, he's standing there speaking as one who knows full well at that point that he is about to lay his life down for his enemies. See, the truth at the heart of this passage is the gospel message, the fact that we actually in sin were enemies of God. And God didn't stand there in sheer judgment but actually sent Jesus to die on our behalf to take the penalty for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. To break the cycle of enmity, He didn't wait till we had turned to Him, but in fact, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't just talk about this stuff, He was willing to suffer for it. When He was being arrested by guards that ultimately, as the Son of God, He had power over, when one of His friends, Peter, struck one of the guards and cut off His ear, Jesus told Him to put away His sword and He healed the soldier his enemy, who was there to do him harm in front of everyone. And it was just a prelude to what he was about to do next, which was to go to the cross, to be now there to bleed out and die for the very people who were cursing him, humiliating him, and calling insults out at him. And while he was on the cross, he even said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Marislav Volf, a theologian, He says this about God's example in the gospel. He says, At the sight of our sin, God did not give way to uncontrolled rage and measureless vengeance. Neither did God insist on just retribution. Instead, God took our sin and condemned it in Jesus Christ. But God did so not out of cowardice, but in order to free us from sin's gulf and power. That's how we should treat those who transgress against us. We should absorb the wrongdoing in order to transform the wrongdoers. Forgiveness mirrors the generosity of God whose ultimate goal is neither to satisfy injured pride nor to justly apportion reward and punishment but to free sinful humanity from evil and thereby reestablish communion with us. This is the gospel in its stark simplicity, as radically countercultural and at the same time as beautiful beautifully human as anything one can imagine. Romans 5:7 says while we were enemies of God Christ died for us. This is why Jesus speaks with such authority when he says, turn the other cheek. When he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because he was a living embodiment of that very teaching. And if you are sitting here as a follower of Jesus, you cannot stand in judgment over anyone because you too were an enemy of God who has been made new. This is the gospel. So where do we land with this stuff? Well, firstly, if you do not know God or where you stand with him, know but God has done everything possible and everything necessary in order for you to be reconciled with God. You cannot be too far gone. There cannot be someone more far gone than someone who would be described as an enemy. That's as far from reconciliation as you can get with someone. And yet the gospel is Christ died for his enemies. And so if you are not in right relationship with God now, just know that he has offered you forgiveness. And if you want help in understanding or you even have some objections even before that about can we even believe the Scriptures? Is any of this actually true? We would love to help you with that. And a little bit later when we fill out the cards, if you just put there you want to know more about Jesus, we want you to know this healing and this forgiveness that can be found in the Gospel and nowhere else. So if you are not sure where you stand with God, I encourage you just to get sure. There is nothing like the love of Christ. But if you are here and you are a believer... Jesus is calling you, empowering you to live this out. The truth is, none of us have lived up to this standard. Even for Keshire Thomas, she would, I'm sure, honestly admit, that while that was a heroic act in which she embodied Christ-like love, that that would not be the everyday reality. That all of us have fallen short of this. That none of us, as have Jesus said, been perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. But there is grace in the Gospel for that. And even though we are all a work in progress... We're called year on year to hear God's Word and to want to live it out, to be more like our Savior, to, to want more people to experience the love that we've experienced in Christ. And so the first thing would be, if there is someone that you would consider an enemy, Jesus tells you the first step, pray for them. It is often very hard to maintain hatred and enmity in your heart when you begin to pray for someone and pray for their good. Again, if you pray for fire to rain down from heaven, yes, that probably will stir up more hatred and enmity towards them. But Jesus says, pray for your enemies, for repentance on their part and renewal, and pray for their good. But if this isn't a present reality, can I encourage you as the church to be praying for our brothers and sisters across the world for whom this passage is incredibly present and hard-hitting? Years ago, when we visited a church in the northern part of Sulawesi in Indonesia, we met a team of about 12 or 15 people and there was not one Christian there who did not have some story of violence either directly at them or a family member or some kind of loss because they were being persecuted for following Jesus. And so when they hear Jesus' words to turn the other cheek, to not retaliate, it's not a minor thing. May we be praying for the church across the world that they would exemplify Christ-like love in the hardest possible context. We're talking about family members. We're talking about themselves who are suffering. That They would have strength to honor Jesus in that moment because Christ's witness in his church is so powerful when his people live this out. So there's not a present reality for you to be praying for those for whom it is. But there is one more step. Jesus says in this passage, if you only do good to those who do good to you, what's the difference between you and everyone else? Everyone operates on that mode. That's how, that is the default standard for the world. Unless you're especially selfish, you will do nice things to people who do nice things to you. And even if you didn't do them with that in mind, that's generally how it kind of goes. So here, Jesus is saying, actually, be marked as a person who does good to people who don't do good to you, who you wouldn't consider to be your friends. let's consider something reasonably present then. Let's consider the workplace, Real talk, every workplace has a pest. And if you can't, and you're laughing because you can think of that person, and if you can't think of that person, be careful because it may be you. But every workplace has one. I remember walking past a work site, and we had our kids and someone else's kids with us, and I could see this situation about to unfold. I could see the guy just by his swagger. I could tell this was this was the workplace pest, the uncle's nephew that couldn't be fired or something like that, the apprentice who just like was trying to thought the way to get in with everyone was to annoy them, whatever it was, right? And he had a bottle of water, and there were two guys loading the truck, and they looked like men who were the kind of show up on time, work hard, so you go home on time, properly competent workers. And he had a bottle of water and I knew it was gonna happen. I just couldn't get to the kids in time. And he sprayed the guy with the water and of course out has come just an explosion of like of words that the kids were like, What? Like and they, they've heard of these words, they've heard them rumored about, but to actually hear them like live was like, wow, this is incredible. And so we just scurried them on as quickly as possible. But even walking past that for a moment, I could tell, I, I could tell there was a long-standing dynamic of this guy being the annoying, time-wasting John Ralphio just passed in the workplace. And the truth is, everyone has someone in your context, whether it's study or work, who is the person that everyone wants to avoid. They're the stop and chat person, they're the micromanager, you you fill in the blanks. The person that no one wants to give time to, let alone extra time to. And of course, there are responsibilities that you have to carry out, you don't have infinite time when you're on someone else's pay, but wouldn't it be a, a thing and a rehearsal for a time when you might have to actually carry out real enemy love to be the kind of person who's looking out for those who are neglected in your context and to do good to them and to seek their good? to not just be a person who does good to those who do good to you, to not just be a person who does good to those who can do good to you because they can promote you, to not be a person who's known for being really peer-to-peer with someone, but once you get a promotion, you leave everyone behind in your wake, but actually being a person who is marked by doing good to those who have no possible way to pay you back. And actually, the kind of people who are even doing good to them or associating with them, might drop your status in your context. To be kind to the people that others ignore. To be kind to the hired staff, the temps, the cleaners. To be someone who is known as doing good to those who have no opportunity even to do good to you because Christ did good to you when you had no opportunity to do good to him or repay it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. May we be a people who are marked by love for those who do not or cannot or will not love us back. As individuals, as a church, may we be a people who are willing to suffer wrong in order to love that Christ might be magnified in his church. Let's pray that we be those kind of people. Father, we just marvel at the fact that while we were your enemies, you sent Jesus, your beloved son, to suffer, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to be unjustly tried and then crucified, and to be trampled underfoot and ignored, that our sin might be washed away, that we might be made new, and that we might be reconciled to you. May it be a reminder to us that retribution and retaliation will never bring reconciliation, but love will. So, Father, may we be a people who are marked by this kind of love, who though it's hard, would fight to love in this way and would have a kind of gospel strength and toughness to us, that we might honor Jesus in everything we do. And Father, we we praise you that this delights you. And we pray that we'd have many stories, even in our own context, of loving those who do not or cannot love us back. And may it all be for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Jacob's going to lead us in the next part of our gathering now.